Welcome to Start, Scale, Sustain, a story-driven podcast for nonprofit leaders and entrepreneurs. Last week, we talked about how to embrace failure and how to avoid letting fear steal your dream when starting a nonprofit. And this week, we're going to learn a little bit more about Justin and the Care for AIDS story. I'm your producer, Molly Heacock, and as always, we are here with Justin Miller, the co-founder and CEO of Care for AIDS. Thanks, Molly. I hope that people listening this week will take away one big idea from this episode, and that's this idea that in these early days of starting an organization, you have to live between two realities, which can be at times really hard to balance. One is this state of dreaming about some desired future and having a 30,000 foot picture of what could be, and also living in the minutia and the details of what it takes to start an organization. And we'll talk more about um, how we walked through that, but hopefully our listeners uh, can relate to that tension and hopefully we'll be able to encourage them on how to, to live between those two perspectives. Uh, so the theme for today is dream big and act small. I'm super excited to hear kind of how you managed that when it was just you on staff. Um, but I also want our listeners to hear kind of the whole Care for AIDS story and that that theme that strings throughout Dream Big and Act Small. So start from the beginning. How did Care for AIDS start? Well, it begins at a conference I was attending back in 2006, and it was the uh, Global Leadership Summit in Chicago. And one of the topics that they were featuring that year was this issue of HIV and AIDS. It had been an issue that was getting a lot of attention, but the church, who was mainly the audience of this event, was not really um, interested or engaged with. So Bono was one of the speakers uh, at that event, and he was interviewed by the pastor of that church, Bill Hybels. And he said a lot of things that still resonate with me very strongly today, but one of the things he said, and I'll never forget, is he said, this is unacceptable. God will not let the church walk away from the AIDS emergency because it's difficult, because it's expensive, or because it's a moral hazard. And he said that this is the essence of why the church is on this planet, is to help bring healing and restoration to people who are hurting and suffering. And the church had neglected that responsibility when it came to this issue of HIV and AIDS. And I knew in that moment that I was supposed to do something to help bring more attention and education and awareness about this issue. Little did I know that would actually result in the forming of this organization. But uh, in that moment, I felt like I was part of the, the majority of the church that was, was completely ignorant and, and apathetic towards this issue. And I knew that I needed to look in the mirror and take responsibility for my own inaction and then somehow move toward uh, getting more educated and involved in this issue and then hopefully encouraging others to do likewise. So Bono, man, I love that so much. So I've been to so many conferences where I'm like, oh, I feel so moved. This was the best talk I've ever heard. And then I go home and nothing ever changes. So what was different for you sitting there hearing Bill Hybels interview Bono? What was the thing that drove you to actually do something? Well, I'll, I'll say a big part of this, and I think this is so important for our entrepreneurs to hear, is that it is always better when you can do this with a partner. Um, you have somebody in that that inter enterprise or venture with you. And I was at that conference that day with a with a good buddy of mine, Zach Fallon, and 
neither of us will ever be outdone by the other. <laughs> so I think we, we fueled a little bit of, of this desire to actually act on this, this vision. But I will also say that, that, that Kyd uniquely matched us for this task because he was the dream big guy and I was the act small guy. And it's not that we couldn't do both, but it's that we each had our own bias. And my bias was how do we strategize? How do we execute? His was imagine the things that we could do. And I attribute so much of, of our success in launching to um, what Zach brought to the table. And so we had actually about a 12 hour car drive after we left Chicago back to Atlanta. And during that time, we just started to dream and think about what um, we could do really not to get the global church involved in this issue, but what could we do to get our home church involved? And that was a little bit of how we were acting small. It wasn't how do we get a thousand churches to give a million dollars to this issue it was we have been placed in a church that is not doing anything about this issue. So how can we start by getting that church to get on board and do something about, about this issue? So we started having that conversation and that led us down the road to say, well, first of all, let's see who else is in this space. Who's doing this kind of work. Cause uh, we can't be the first people that have had this idea, but truthfully, um, I'm not saying there weren't any other organizations, but we found like this was a very uh, vacant space where there were not a lot of organizations that were doing this kind of work for all the reasons I just mentioned before. And so we said, well, before we can speak with any uh, credibility or command on this issue, we've actually got to understand it for ourselves. And I think you know, that's huge for all of our, our listeners to understand is that we can't begin to, to solve a problem until we fully understand it. And uh, I'm not sure who the quote was by, but the quote that says a problem well-defined is half solved. And we didn't know exactly what was happening, but we knew that we needed to go uh, get out of the bubble that we lived in, in the suburbs of Atlanta and get over to Africa so that we can learn about this issue firsthand. And so that's what began us on the journey. And there were things along the way that continued to encourage us and affirm us that we were going down the right path. And next thing you know, about nine months later, myself, Zach, another friend of ours, Josh, and, and a filmmaker were on a trip together to Kenya for the first time. So you were 19, 20? On that first trip, I was 19. So 19 years old, you decide you're going to make a documentary. Like I'm sure every 19 year old has had the dream of doing. Uh, how did you end up in Kenya? Tell us about, did the documentary ever get made? Where can we find that documentary? Yeah. Well, you know, at 19, we, we were invincible and we <laughs> thought that we could uh, take on the world. And we had just seen uh, another organization that many of that time would remember called invisible children. They had rise rose to great prominence through their documentary. We thought, how hard can that be? I mean, isn't it like a point and shoot kind of thing, you know? And, uh, and we realized that we were completely out of our, of, out of our league, uh, on this documentary thing. None of us had really been trained in, in storytelling or, or production. And we did have a guy that knew how to use a camera, but that was the extent of it. So <laughs> it was uh, a big undertaking, but it was we would soon learn was the reason why we were supposed to be in Kenya was not to do a documentary, but it was to meet these two Kenyan leaders named Cornell and Duncan who were instrumental in the creation of this organization. These two men had known each other for a number of years. They are 
from opposing tribes in Kenya. So a very unlikely partnership, but they had been working together for, for many years and they'd both been personally affected by HIV in a way that gave them a unique perspective to speak about this issue. And they had been very involved in different aspects of HIV work over the past five years. And so they were essentially on loan to us as tour guides from another organization to take us around Kenya and to try to give us a, a complete picture of what was happening uh, with HIV and AIDS uh, at that time. And I think the story of Pamela is one that illustrates a little bit about what's happening during that time. We went to Pamela's home to try to find her, to do an interview with her. And her parents told us that she was no longer living there, that she was, uh, had been moved to another home on the outskirts of town. And so we, we got directions and we started heading out to Pamela's home. And as we approached the, the outskirts of town, we noticed that there was this huge swamp uh, on the outskirts of town. And at the very top of the horizon, there was this little home and it was the only thing that was in view uh, where we were standing. And it was this tiny shack. And it was the place that Pamela had been exiled to, where she was supposed to live out the rest of her days in isolation. And this was a physical representation of what was happening across the entire country, which was if you had HIV, you were unwelcomed in your family, in your church. Your kids were outcast in school, and you experienced a tremendous amount of stigma and discrimination because of your status. And Pamela, as the woman, had been infected by her husband, but because of her status as a woman, she was not given fair consideration, and her husband was thought to be blameless, and he left her, and he took the kids, and she was the one that was kind of bearing the weight of this infection. And she was living there, hoping that her life would would really come to an end, because she had reached a point where she was, she was really, there was no reason left for her to live and she had lost all hope. And seeing her was just a a stark reminder that this was a a devastating issue that was affecting families and communities and churches and people. I wanted to see Pamela, people like Pamela to be reached and to be cared for. And she needed so much care through medication and through counseling and through training and seeing her story and hearing her her life story made me realize that that this is a this is a big issue that we need to figure out a way to address. So that experience with Pamela really solidified the the passion in you for HIV and AIDS as an issue. But you had you had so many interviews, you had all this film footage. What happened next to to start Care for AIDS? Well, as our time in Kenya drew to a close, we had spent all this time with Cordell and Duncan. We had, we had heard a little bit of their heart and their personal stories with HIV and AIDS, but uh, I don't think we realized the depth at which these men were committed to seeing their country transformed in this area. And in the final days, I asked Duncan, say, what would you do given the opportunity and the resources to try to address this issue? How would you go about tackling this. And he said, well, good thing you asked. Uh, We have a plan that we have put together over the past five years and have just been hoping uh, and praying that there would be an opportunity for us to uh, make this plan a reality. Can I share that with you? I said, absolutely. I'd love to see it. So we get on a public transportation bus and we travel across the city and we go and he digs out this, this stack of papers from his desk in his little apartment 
and I look at it and it is a proposal that's written out about how they want to partner with local churches to reach people that have HIV. And at the time their, their name for this project was called Metlua, <laughs> which was classic Kenyan uh, <laughs> acronym. And it stood for ministry and evangelism through love, through true love waits to people living with HIV and AIDS. And I thought <laughs> you've really fun. nailed this uh, concept here. The name <laughs> is a little bit lacking in my opinion, but it was really a, a reflection of, of everything that we had seen the past month. And it was articulated uh, in such a, a clear way in this proposal. And uh, part of me was thinking, you know, why have we not seen this sooner? But they didn't have an agenda. They had no idea that this group of 19 year olds was the answer to the prayer that they'd been praying for five years. But I looked at that plan and I realized we came here into Kenya to shoot a documentary, but we're here for a totally different purpose. And that purpose has changed dramatically. It doesn't mean that the documentary won't get made, but we were here to see this plan and to respond to it. And in the moment, I didn't make any commitments to Duncan, but I knew that this was something that I wanted to be a part of. And I asked Duncan, what will it take to help you and Cornell begin to realize this dream? What, what is the first thing that you need? And he said, well, we have a, a place that we want to work from. We want to host some programs there. We want to have our offices there. And if we could secure this property, then that would be a huge step forward for us. And I said, what's it going to take to get this house rented so that you can begin this work? And he says, it's going to take $200 a month. And I thought, wow, what an amazing work this is that's being held hostage because they don't have $200 a month. And even as a college student, I can do that. Even if I have to cut back on my meals or my Starbucks or something, I can do $200 a month. And, and I said, we want to, I want to be a part of this. I want to help you. And so I went back after that trip and, and began to, to really uh, act small. It was nothing big and, and, and grand vision at that time. It was just, these are two guys with the vision and I want to help support them. So how can we tell their story, raise a few dollars and, and help get some funds over to support what they're doing in Kenya? That's amazing. So acting small, 200 bucks a month, but at the time, what was the big dream? What would you and Cornell and Duncan have said would have been like your vision for the next however many years at that time when you were sending over that 200 bucks a month? Yeah, well, well, things changed a little bit from being just a, a kind of passive supporter of what they were doing to become a, an active partner in this ministry together. And as we actually created this organization and became incorporated and got our 501c3 and built a board, we realized that there was actually uh, an organization here that was being formed. And at that time, I, I admit my, my bias is to be a little bit more in the details. And so it's it's easy for me sometimes to lose sight of what this big dream was. So I remember pulling the guys around a table one night and just saying, Hey guys, tell me if we were all just blown away by what God does through this organization, what do you imagine that the future could look like? And I remember going around the table and, and these guys saying, you know, Justin, if we could open five centers, if we could serve five communities and each of those centers could support 80 families a year, wouldn't that be an amazing result an amazing outcome and at that time that was seen as, as the big dream and we look back with a little bit of embarrassment about how small that dream really really was because we've now 
been on this journey for 10 years and we've now opened 48 centers and we've seen 10,000 people receive care through one of these centers. And it's just, it's amazing. We're in awe of how much has, has been done. But in those early days, we believed that our dream was, Hey, we're going to open these five centers. But then every single day I had to get up and I had to figure out how are we going to take the next step in this? And I had to figure out how do we legally structure this organization and who are we going to get on the board and, and how are we going to raise this money that we need? And, and there's just so many details that have to be attended to. And those details, if left uh, unattended are going to be things that will start to uh, derail your organization. And so that was a little bit more of my bias. I think at times I've had to help people, remind me sometimes to pull up and, and to be the visionary leader that sometimes care for AIDS requires. And, and at times I have a tendency to drift back into a role of really a uh, strategist and, uh, and executor for the organization. So at, at 48 centers now, we've got 10,000 graduates representing over 30,000 kids. Um, is it like every day you wake up and you do this like big brave heart speech for the staff and like it's just all these big visions, big visions, or is it still, do you still feel like you're that college kid sending over $200 a month doing those small things every day to make that vision bigger? No, every single day, it's still the same of acting small and moving forward in a, at times seeming slow uh, arduous, but it's, it's that consistent and steady application of effort over a period of time that starts to, to see the results that Carefree's experiences today. There's not been uh, a grand moment where I stood up in front of a crowd and, and people gave us a million dollars. No, that does happen. It hasn't <laughs> happened for us yet, but it has been 10 years of, of steady work and just figuring out what is that next step for myself or my team. Maybe that's answering emails. Maybe that's planning the next event. Maybe that's hiring the next person. And that has not changed over these past 10 years that we still have this dream. It's a lot bigger dream today. Uh, we'd like to see a hundred thousand people be cared for over the next 10 years instead of just 10,000. But every single day we still have to get up and we have to focus on those small details that's going to move us from here to there. I love that. Yeah. Those, those big visions, I've heard it said it's a long obedience in the same direction. And that's definitely what you're describing where you've got a big dream, but you've got to act small to make it happen every day. Um, so my, my final question is if there, is there a story or an example over the history of care phrase over the past 10 years, that is just like the perfect metaphor for act small, dream big. It's the story of Nora. I think Nora was one of the women that we met on that first trip to Kenya. She is a mother of seven and when we met Nora, she was this amazing picture of, of success. And, and she had started a business in her community selling fish. And she seemed like a happy and healthy mother of seven. But that's not how it had always been. She, just a few years earlier, had been on her deathbed um, with HIV. And she had kept that very secret because that could have brought intense shame on their family. But in her final days, she wanted to confess that status to somebody. And so she called one of her sons and said, I want to tell you that I'm 
dying, but we, I want to tell you two things. First of all, you're now responsible for raising uh, your younger siblings. And this, this teenage boy was about to become the head of a household. And she also said, I want to tell you that I'm dying because of HIV. And this son who'd had a, a little bit of exposure to uh, public health and community health, he immediately intervened in the life of his mom and he helped her get access to the right medication. And he began to just encourage her daily that she shouldn't become depressed or overwhelmed, but he just encouraged her, prayed for her. He provided her with the right nutrition that she needed so that she could live. And in just a matter of a few weeks, she began to change her body, began to heal. And she was able to begin walking again. And immediately he knew that being idle was not going to be good for her. So he helped her start the small business, invested a little capital. And she started selling fish in the local market, which gave her days great meaning and purpose. And she found a new community there that she really connected to. And now three years later, Nora was this picture of a mom who was raising her seven kids and the trajectory of that family had been changed forever. But what was amazing about that story was that the son in that story is actually Cornell, one of the co-founders of this ministry. And as you hear him talk about his mom, you realize that had his mom passed away, he would have been responsible to go back to the village to get a job and start raising his younger siblings. And our paths would have never crossed. This organization would have never been birthed. And Kenya and the world would have lost an amazing leader in Cornell, all because one mother uh, died instead of lived. And so by his intervention, acting extremely small, uh, Cornell and Duncan both want to see Kenya transformed in the area of HIV and AIDS. But at times, the, the only thing that he knew how to do was just to take care of his mom and care for her. And that has set in motion a series of events that has led to this organization today that has 48 centers and 10,000 graduates. And it was because Cornell was faithful to do the small things. And, and you hear it said, or I've heard it said before, um, the quote that big doors of opportunity swing on small hinges of obedience. And I think that that is what we've been trying to do faithfully at Care Phrase for all these years. And I think what Cornell did for his mom is that we're just going to be faithful on these small um, tasks and these small activities. And we're going to be faithful in that. And we're going to trust that over time, that's going to lead the way to some big opportunities for Care Phrase in the future. It's such a good reminder that even if you don't know the dream that you're working toward every day with those small actions, that you're creating potentially this huge ripple effect. And I just love that story of Cornell and his mom because, yeah, those 10,000 graduates, that's 10,000 more Noras who, who knows, we won't ever know the impact that Care Phrase has had um, because each of those 10,000 individuals, you know, could affect 10,000 more. So it's just dream big and act small is such a, a practical but fantastic reminder of everything we do every day. Who knows the impact that we're going to have? Um, well, that's all for today. We've, we've lot talked about failure last week, this week about dreaming big and doing those small acts of obedience. Um, next week, we're going to talk a lot more about being prepared and next week will be our final kind of start themed episode of start scale and sustain. So in the meantime, I encourage everyone again to visit justintmiller.com, follow Justin on social media, ask him questions, tweet at him. Uh, get that conversation started. 
and we hope to see you all next week.